Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, another day, another podcast. What's going on? Not so much. It is going to be fun to reflect on the Olympic Games with you, lessons that we all can learn from them over the next uh, 30, 45 minutes here. Yes, I'm really excited about this. This is this is my jam. But before we get into that, just a heads up to listeners, we've got Brad's new book, The Practice of Groundedness. We're launching our pre-order campaign where you get all sorts of awesome goodies. You know, this book to me is a game changer. I'm biased, I know, but it is a better model to reach sustainable success. And perhaps more importantly for the listeners, if you go on the growtheq.com right now, pre-order it, you get all sorts of goodies, including training plans designed by yours truly, myself, for the 5K and longer races. I have been grinding away at these training plans to make them the best that they could be so that... You know, whoever buys Brad's book is going to run fast. If that's not your thing, we've got all sorts of other giveaways, including, you know, if you're on the other end of the exercise spectrum, uh, training plans for strength training from the best gym in the country. And, you know, if you're not in the exercise stuff, that's cool. We still want you to get the book. You've got all sorts of goodies on how to, you know, manage things, how to improve performance in whatever endeavor you are pursuing. So with that, growtheq.com, check it out, pre-order it now so that we don't have to bug you anymore. Just launching it today. Get on it before those things go away. Wow, Steve, I, I appreciate all the kind words. And did you just make this about your exercise plan being the thing, not the book? I will say that you know when when I told Steve that let's think through whatever pre-order bonus is, Steve said, "You know, there's going to be a lot of runners that could benefit from all the messages in your book, but they're going to say like this isn't enough about running. So I'm going to take a shot at designing the best training plans that I can come up with. So maybe we should just launch Steve's training plans, and then as a giveaway, you get my book um, for the runners out there." But for the non-runners out there, as Steve pointed out, it's not a running book. It's a general performance book. It tackles so many of the uh, themes and questions that we wrestle with on the podcast. So please, 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 prayer to the book. It goes a long way to help my publisher get excited about it. You get all the cool, neat stuff. Um, and I firmly believe that you'll get a lot of value out of reading it. So www.thegrowtheq.com. And from there, you'll easily figure out how to go ahead and place that order. Um, cool. So with that out of the way, let's start with Simone Biles and the moment that mental health is having, has had at the Olympics. I think it's a really nice foray from my book into this conversation. It's been fascinating that, um, places like the Jim Rome sports show are taking a real interest in this book. And it's not really a sports book either, but because now mental health and sports have become so interwoven, there is this this notion of like, what does it mean to have sustainable performance and sustainable success in sports? And 
I'll just tee this up. I mean, unless you guys have been living in a cave, you very well know what happened with Simone Biles. Steve and I have both written about it, as well as just about everyone. Um, I think that the real debate, in my mind, is the title of a piece that ran in the LA Times that our good friend, who's a coach of Olympians, Stu McMillan, sent to me, that said, Simone Biles failed as a gymnast, but she excelled as a human being. And then the subtitle was basically like, why can't everyone accept that? So I don't know, Steve, do you accept that? That seems like a good starting point to riff on. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that Ty, I haven't read that article. I've read many on this, but not that one. But I think that title captures a large portion of it. I think there's more nuance because I'm not a huge fan of the, you know, word failure. Um, especially at, at, at this high of a level, um, especially given, you know, Simone, I think um, what she went through was this combination. And I wrote about this in the newsletter. So if you want the details, but this combination of like physical and psychological, like everything is right. So I, I think what it shows is that people really struggle with the main topic that we always hammer home on this podcast, which is like, not everything is black and white. There's nuance between things. If you step away, it doesn't mean you're a failure. If you step away, it doesn't mean you should be like celebrated or a hero. Like there's this in-between moment that we need to capture a little bit. I agree. When I first saw that title, I thought the same thing as it's like, well, let's talk about what does it mean to fail? Uh, you know, if, if failure is not being the best in the world at something, then sure. But she's actually quite successful. And, and obviously, when people write titles like that, they're trying to be provocative. It's generally not the author. It's the newspaper wanting people to read the story and, and click on it. Um but yeah, I and then she came back and she competed in the balance beam and she took a bronze medal, which for her is also potentially a quote unquote failure. And if that's the price that you pay for being really good at something is the bar is Olympic gold. Well, then, of course, you're going to feel that weight on your shoulders, particularly if you're a 24 year old young woman who's been thrusted into this level of spotlight. So I guess where I come out on this is I hope Simone Biles gets whatever help she needs, managing whatever acute anxiety that she has. To me, she's the greatest gymnast of all time because she was before this Olympics even started. I don't think that her not competing makes her a better gymnast, but I'm not sure it makes her a worse gymnast either. Um, so that's how I feel on that. And then I think the other big learning and something I've been talking a lot about with um, a couple close friends who are head coaches for various high school sports is just the message that we're sending to younger kids right now about mental health, period, but then particularly in a sports setting. And um, it's really, really tricky because it's a tightrope to walk, as we've written about, as we've probably discussed on the show, between when the right thing is, mood follows action, pick up, push through, Versus when the right thing is to step aside, rest, recover, get help. And ultimately, you end up combining those two things, right? It's not either or, it's both and. But when an acute issue happens, it's really hard to make that decision. 
Um, and where I come out here is I think the most rational way to think about it, if you're in that situation yourself, or if you're working with people who find themselves in that situation, is what's the worst that can happen if you blow up and have a panic attack in the middle of what you're doing? And for Simone Biles, it's terrible injury. For you know, a 15-year-old about to run a 400 that's scared of losing, they lose. For someone struggling with public speaking, they bomb the speech. Now, I'm not saying that in those moments, that's not devastating for those people. But I think a big part of managing through this is not just how bad is whatever is going on in your head, but also what are the stakes of, um, of breaking down during the act. So I'm not sure if you remember this. I'm sure you do, Brad. But in the movie Free Solo, where Alex Honnold is is trying to, you know, climb El Capitan with, you know, without any ropes or safety harness or anything, just him up there. The first attempt, he walks up to the, you know, the wall, whatever, starts the climb, and then abandons it and says something to the effect of like, nope not in the right headspace, like these cameras, people watching, it's like driving me nuts, whatever it is. I don't have the exact quote. And he steps away. And that, and then he, you know, if you haven't seen the movie, he comes back successfully, does it the next day or a couple days later, whatever it is. But that to me is a perfect example of this because the fine line for someone like Alex Honnold climbing, you know, essentially a 3,000 foot rock face or whatever is... he has to be on he has to be in the right mental space so if he's not you know thus the tough decision the smart decision is check out done like come back another day now simone biles like isn't as you know gymnastics isn't as extreme as being up on a you know rock face with no out but it's still you're tumbling through the air the injury risk is very high. Like other gymnasts have been paralyzed from, you know, messing things up. Other elite level gymna- gymnasts. Uh, there's several stories that have come in, come out about that. So the, the risk is still high if you're not in the right headspace. Now, I think this is where we have to rely on and almost give credit to, to Biles because like she's one of only a few athletes in the world, gymnasts, who kind of understand what that headspace is for her and where, like, how we'll, quite, we'll call it how low she can go when she's out of optimal. And I'm going to trust her judgment where if she says, like, hey, I have the twisties, I have no awareness of where I am in the, in the air or where the ground is or what my body's doing when I'm flipping and turning, like, to her, that is too low to perform. You know, and I think I think that is, again, that that is the difference there is it's what's the consequence and then having the self-awareness enough to know, like, are you in a place where you can push or are you in a place where pushing might lead to something? And I think the the takeaway for me is you need to develop that self-awareness. And it's something that I taught. We've talked about a lot on this podcast even in terms of, uh, you know, especially in terms of running, but it's like one of the best skills that you can learn, especially early on as that as a runner or endurance athlete or athlete in general is knowing where that line is of what 
is an injury or could lead to catastrophe versus what is just some discomfort or pain that like, well, it might hurt a lot and it might lead to like a lot of like emotional and physical strain. You can keep going and your body will shut you down before you cause yourself harm. 100% agree. Um, Another plug for preordering the practice of groundedness. It's a big part of chapter two on the book which is entitled Accept Where You Are to Get Where You Want to Go. And self-distancing or this notion of creating the self-awareness to make a good decision in a shitty situation by getting outside of yourself is a big part of that chapter. One of the practices or the skills in there that is very much evidence-based is this notion of pretend that a friend is in the same situation you are and then give that friend advice. So if Simone Biles' colleague or friend, another elite level gymnast was saying, I'm having this level of panic, I know that everyone wants me to do this, but here's what I think is going to happen. My guess is Simone Biles would tell her friend, no, 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 don't do this. You're going to injure yourself. The risk is too high. It'll be okay. And that's what she told herself. And that's what she did. So I give her all the credit in the world. Back to the starting prompt. I think it depends again on how you define failure because sure, You could say that she failed because she didn't compete and win, but this is a lot better of a failure than attempting something that would have been reckless in the moment, shattering her ankle or worse. Um, So that's where I think that I'm coming out on Simone Biles. Let's transition to um, a story that seemed like it should have been much more lighthearted. Somehow, thanks to the internet... It became another one of these struggles of was it good or was it bad? On this one, I think anyone with any kind of skin in the game in any high-performance atmosphere where you work really hard for something, be it sport or outside of sport, is in agreement that it was a beautiful moment. And Steve had the Growth Equation's most popular tweet of all time about this moment. So Steve blew up Twitter before the freaking IOC told Steve that he was illegally using their content and he had to take down his tweet. So there's no public record of this. But it went nuts. And I'm really happy it went nuts because it was a good moment and it was a good message that Steve delivered. So since we can't go back and look at your Twitter, Steve, why don't you tell listeners what we're talking about here? Sure. So you can... I tried to capture the essence of it in in the newsletter, uh, which you can find on the Growth EQ, but essentially have two high jumpers, uh, Mutez Barshim and Gianmarco Timberi. Uh, Barshim from representing Qatar, Timberi, Italy. And in the high jump, you know, you keep jumping and the bar keeps going up and whoever jumps the highest wins. It's not, not too complicated. Um, and what happened is they jumped all the, both Barshim and Timberi jumped all the way up to seven feet, nine and a quarter inch. They both cleared it, and then they both failed three times in a row at seven feet ten. Okay, and the tiebreaker in high jump is if you had more misses on the way up, right? If you missed more often at heights before you cleared them. Well, both Timberi and Barshim were clean, meaning they didn't miss a single time until they missed three times in a row at the same height. So they were tied. So what happens? The referee comes up and discusses having a jump off because that is one of the options 
Uh, Barsham interrupts him, says, can we have two golds? The referee blurts out, it is possible. And then Barsham and Tamberry hug, embrace, jump, celebrate in one of the coolest moments because they chose to share two golds. Now, one contextual thing that I think is really important is that whole procedure, including them getting to choose whether to have a jump off or not, is outlined in the track and field rules. Okay, so it's not like they just said, hey, we're tied. You know, we're going to make this up. It is it follows the rules to a T. And it was a wonderful moment. If you haven't seen the video, you check it out. And, you know, diving into this to set you up for the conversation, Brad, um, I was struck by longtime Sports Illustrated writer, and now I think he works for NBC Sports, Tim Layden, when he heard uh, that some people were having controversy over this thing. He tweeted out, is this a real thing? How could anybody not love this moment? And I think that sums it up perfectly. Yeah, so I don't want to give the controversy uh, any more oxygen than it already has. So all I'll say is that there are some people out there that are like, this is just another example of snowflakes, blah, blah, blah. Um, One person commented that it's like a summer camp tie. But summer camp ties involve nine-year-olds trying to like score a basket in an eight-foot hoop. These are the two best jumpers in the world that have both overcome so much to get here. So that's what we call a straw man argument. Like it's just made out of straw. You can easily poke it down. So let's just focus on the good. What an amazing moment. You know, there's this quote from um, the John Krakauer book. It was made into a movie. Oh, crap. I'm forgetting the name. Into the Wild. And the book ends, the movie ends as well, with the guy realizing that happiness is best shared. And I just kept coming back to, like, what a neat opportunity to be able to share that moment with a competitor. I also come back to the Greek word for compete. The root of compete means um, together, to excel together. So compete is not about beating somebody else, at least not the true etymology of the word. It's about bringing the most out of each other together. And that's exactly what these two jumpers had done. So I am totally supportive of them sharing the gold medal. I think it's wonderful. I think also from a pure business standpoint, Olympians are phenomenal at what they do, no doubt. But unless you're in a major sport like basketball or maybe like the 100-meter dash, you don't make any money unless you're a gold medalist. There are stories about athletes in rather obscure sports, kind of like the high jump, that win the silver or bronze medal and end up like experiencing homelessness two years later because they don't have any money. So My hunch is that these athletes also have enormous performance bonuses, where if they get a gold medal, their sponsors, their federations, whatever, are going to give them tons of money. So if nothing else, it allows two people that have donated, I shouldn't say donated because it's not donated, they've made a choice to spend so much time mastering this pursuit. They gave a lot of people entertainment and joy watching them do this, and they're going to get compensated. So purely from a logical standpoint, if someone's like, hey, What's more important, saying that you're the only gold medalist or saying that you shared gold in this moment 
And by the way, a million dollars is going to separate the two decisions. Of course, you take the gold medal. So I think it was beautiful. I think it was logical. And like always, I think everyone that has a problem with it is super far from the arena. They're on the couch eating chips, drinking a six pack of Pabst Blue Ribbon. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think there's there's definitely a uh, a economic logical reason to do so. Um, you also risk losing something versus gaining something if you're both gold versus gold and silver. But I also think like it sheds a little bit of this like killer instinct uh, model we have in our our head of like the best of the best like only wanting gold or doing whatever they can to win. And there are certainly examples of athletes like that, maybe a Lance Armstrong, for example. But I, I, I love this moment because it's, it, it's two guys who are literally the best in the world who also happen to be friends, um, have a long history together, and recognize in the moment that like, hey, two people winning, like sharing this is a much better moment. And that, again, tells me that, like, you don't have to have this, like, killer instinct, a whole type approach where winning is the only thing. Um, You can share that with your friends if, you know, you're lucky enough to have that, you know, this kind of once in a lifetime moment occur. And I think it's important to play devil's advocate because the thought did cross my mind for, I don't know, 15 seconds. Like, what kind of precedent does this set? You know, there should be one winner, blah, blah, blah. I, I, I completely entertained that thought. I think a lot of people did. And then I reflected and I came out to where I am now. But I think something that helps you understand it is think about the pursuit in your life that you're trying to be the best at. For most people, it's likely career-oriented, maybe family-oriented. Now... Imagine you find yourself in a similar situation. So this would be, in our world, Steve, both of our books getting close to being the number one bestseller. And the New York Times or whoever makes the list comes to us and says, hey, you guys can share the number one spot or we can go another week and see what book is going to sell more copies. It would be nuts I would not consider for a second the go another week and see what book can sell more. Like, only a sociopath would. And I don't think our listeners are sociopaths. So I do think you can have that gut reaction of, but wait. But I think that then when you put it in terms of your own life, and you think of someone that you compete with, that at times you are quote unquote kind of divergent, but you respect the crap out of each other, you work together to get to that point to make each other better... 99.9% of people are going to say, oh, yeah, I want to share that moment with the exception of the sociopaths. And and I think, you know, you bring up a good point here. And I think it's I think that distinction is really important because these two guys competed to the best of their ability during the competition. Right. They didn't they didn't get to the point and be like, oh, we're going to tie and retire. They tried to jump as high as they could and where they ended up just happened to be hey we're tied and then like once that competition was essentially over they just you know flip out of it and the humanity jumps in and i think that is what we're kind of getting at is it's okay to have that like you know i want to win like competition like that fuel behind you 
and that attitude. But like, as soon as the competition's over, like once our books have sold X number and we're tied or whatever it is, like the humanity has to come in. We can't be in like do or die competition mode, like for all of our life. It's not fun. Yep. Like at the, at the end of the day, you know, what Ram Dasa, we're all walking each other home, meaning like, like it's all going to end at death. And do you really want to go through life having moments like that and saying, no, I need to win? Or do you want to share those moments, create memories and like share the love and not in like a hippie way, but in a like these people put deep care and attention into their craft. As Steve mentioned, the chips falled where they fell. And what a beautiful moment that um, that came out of it. All right. So we'd be remiss for the athletics fans that listen to the podcast. I certainly didn't bring them over. These are the people that, you know, maybe you'll get my book because of Steve's training plans for you. Um, But I know enough about sport to know that we saw some very hopeful and incredible things out of the United States track and field program, particularly in the 400 um, hurdles. So, um, Steve, let's do your best to get your brain, like turn on 10% of Steve running brain, but 90% of general listenership to talk about how incredible the 400 hurdles are and what it means for American middle distance running going forward. All right. I will try not to nerd out, but you know, I, I will just say this, the last 24 hours, which include when we're recording this, which included the men's 400 hurdles and the women's 400 hurdles is probably the greatest like day in track and field history in terms of performance um starting off in the men's 400 hurdles you had uh karsten warholm and rye benjamin so norwegian and american benjamin is american go head to head and come down the stretch with warholm one benjamin was second but they demolished the world record so they went under four forty. Uh, well, Warholm went under 46 seconds for 400 hurdles, which is mind boggling because under 46 seconds for a flat 400 is, you know, dang near national class. And then you add in you're jumping over 10 barriers. It's like ridiculous. It's it's insanity. So it was one of the greatest performances of all time in terms of races. It's um, it's up there. The only comparable I have in track and field is it's like watching Usain Bolt when he jumped on the scene and demolished the hundred world record. Well, I just need to make one point because, you know, I, I do know that there are some listeners that are not in, into the track and field world that much, but I want them to be able to appreciate the moment. So I'm going to do my best to size this up. If I were to sprint all out for a hundred meters and not jump over a stick on the track, I probably wouldn't be on that pace. I'd be a little bit over it. So that's how fast these guys are going. Four times, including jumping and making turns. Okay, so this is like mind-blowing for me. Continue. Okay. So then 24 hours later, uh, not to be outdone, the women 400-meter hurdle again line up. This time you've got two Americans. Um Dalila Muhammad and Sydney McLaughlin. Uh, what's interesting here is Muhammad's a veteran, I think 31 years old. Sydney's like the phenom, 21, 22, you know, made 
made uh, the Olympics, I believe, at uh, 16, 17, something like that. And they've traded the world record for the past couple years. And what happened again, you know, they go head to head. Muhammad takes it out fast. And over the last hurdle, uh, Sydney McLaughlin comes back, passes her at the line. They both smash the world record. Third place, in fact, Femke Bowl beat the previous uh, world record, the pre-2021 world record. So you essentially had to, to medal. You had to break like the best time in the world all the way up until 2021, which is, again, nuts. So what's going on here? <laughs> so I, I think you have a couple things converging here. You know, one is you have technological advances in both the shoes and there's been reports of the track being finely tuned uh, to the athletes in particular and sprinting and this kind of middle distance in particular. But I think the other thing that you have that is really important is you have this collision of two kind of once in a generation talents on both sides, Benjamin and Warholm and then McLaughlin and Muhammad. And normally in events, what happens is you have one superstar at a time, right? You have the Usain Bolt, who is just dominant, you know? And others are, are kind of close, but they're in another stratosphere. And in these events, for whatever reason, and it's kind of obscure because up until this point, you know, the 400 hurdles isn't the prime event in track and field. Uh, but you have these talents who have gone back and forth for the last couple of years and has shown that, you know, iron sharpens iron, like it raises each other's other's game. And I think you're seeing that to a large degree. And is it safe to say, at least the story that I want to tell myself, is that the elephant in the room, which is performance enhancing drugs, doping, is less likely in a situation like this because there are a cluster of athletes that are running very similar times. And it would be shocking if all of them were doping and beating the investigators. Yes. You know, I'm as skeptical as anybody on this doping stuff. And you always have to have that in the back of your mind. But what's fascinating to this is in both races, um, the top three were otherworldly in terms of performance. And they come from different countries on the men's side, uh, different training groups on the women's side. So it's not like it's all collected in one country, one area, one coach, which would make the, the, you know, the flag go up to have everybody running at these speeds kind of gives me a little hope and that, you know, at least most or hopefully all are, are clean. Yeah, I'm going to buy that narrative. I mean, the the cost to my psyche of not buying that narrative is too much. So there's good enough reason for me uh, to buy that narrative. And the other thing I'd say is that all of them for the, you know, have been really good uh, for a long time. And several, um, McLaughlin in particular was just absolute phenom as a high schooler. And Benjamin was a phenom at at USC in college, uh, where I, I like to think that, you know, it's much less likely and much, you know, dip more difficult if you're, you're doping in high school or even at, you know, an American, a well-established American college, because there's, 
very little incentive, obviously, for high school or even college coaches uh, to risk something like that. So for the for the sports fans that are listening, Steve, I'm going to ask you to put on your your talking head pundit crystal ball hat. The question that I immediately have is if you take away the jumps, the hurdles, are these the best 400 runners in the world? You know, well, it's interesting. On the men's side, it's possible. Well, on the men's side, it's a little more difficult. I think they'd be among the best. What I do think is we'll see Benjamin, the the American who got second in the 4x4. So we'll get to see his splits and compare him to whoever. And then for the track nerds, it's already been announced that the winner of the men's 400 hurdles, Warholm, is going to run a flat 400 at a track meet after the Olympics. On the women's side, I actually do think that McLaughlin, in particular, could win the flat 400 gold. But one interesting wrinkle here is that another athlete who is not running the 400 who won the 800, Athing Mo, could also be the best 400 runner in the world right now. So it's 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 crazy to me to think we have all these athletes not running the 400 when traditionally the 400 would be a premier event. Think of Michael Johnson, right? Yeah, I saw that Athing Mo 800 race and what a beautiful race to watch. Uh just for the layperson like me, because she went out in front about a hundred meters in and then just like confidently asserted herself and owned the race, stayed out of the fray. There was no chance she was going to get boxed in or trip. She just basically said, I'm confident that I'm the fastest runner. I'm willing to do the work and set the pace for the entire race. And I don't think anyone came within a meter or two of her for the, the, you know, seven eighths of that race. And that was also a neat race because I, I don't know her name, Steve, but you had an American who seemed completely out of the picture kick the last 50, 60 meters uh, herself into the bronze medal position. Yep. Raven Rogers. And, you know, yeah, I think Raven Rogers, because I love her name. What a what a great name. Raven Rogers, if your parents are listening, I mean, not to give your parents credit in this moment, you are a great 400 runner and you've got a great name. A Houstonian, in fact. So Houston representing, um, or grew up in Houston. Uh, and for the listeners, so I'm going to, I think that is if we're, you know, we've been nerding out on track because that's what I like to do. But what are the lessons to take away? I think the 800 Athing Mo, you nailed it. Like that composure and confidence under pressure. Is if you watch that race, even if you have nothing, no idea about athletics or track in general, just watch it and see the control and composure and confidence. She executed what she wanted to do and didn't like let anybody else, you know, dictate things. And then I also found this great quote from the 400 hurdle winner, Sydney McLaughlin, when they asked how she dealt with pressure. And I think this is fantastic because, again, she was a high school phenom, one of the best in in history in terms of high school, and then has fulfilled that promise even as a, a young athlete still. And she said, a lot of that pressure is outside things I can't control, and I just tried to minimize that. I stayed off social media, stayed in my room, talked to friends and family, and stuck to what I knew. And I think, you know, that's a brilliant example of 
how do you how do these athletes handle the pressure? It's nothing complicated. It's pretty simple. Stick to what you can control. Minimize the distractions. You know, stay away from the social media madness, and then lean on your friends and family who are your support. Yep. Um, for the non-athletes, two two more kind of what's the word I'm looking for? Two more parallels to the broader world and also two more chapters of the practice of groundedness. I'm giving away the whole table of contents here is the notion of practicing presence and cultivating presence, uh, particularly important in today's society where there's so much novelty, stimulation and distraction. And from a performance standpoint and from just a general health and well-being standpoint, the more present you can be for the actual thing, and the less you get caught up in all the stuff surrounding the thing, the better you will perform and the happier that you will be. It is very hard to get into a flow state if you're worried about what critics are saying, social media likes and retweets, um, commentators, on and on and on. If you are just focused on the race, on the craft, you will not only do better, but you'll feel a lot better too. Um, and I think that uh, these runners really embodied that kind of presence and were able to put the hype machine aside. And then in the case of the 800 runner, Mu, um, vulnerability. Uh, you know, people that don't know sport might be like, what are you talking about? But, and Steve, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but to go out in front like that at the start of an Olympic race, you are making yourself extremely vulnerable because generally what happens is you want to stay in the pack and you stay together and you stay together and you stay together. You let the other runners pace, you take turns. That way, if one person blows up, everyone blows up. What she did is she said, nope, I'm going to go out front. I'm not going to get any draft. I'm going to have to do all the psychological work of setting the pacing. And if I blow up, I blow up. But if I don't, I run my best race and I win. And it's a huge theme of being grounded and practicing groundedness and having this fulfilling kind of success, very much related to presence, is if you don't let all the noise get in your mind, you can actually be more vulnerable. And through that vulnerability, you gain confidence. Uh, because once you kind of accept the fact that, yup, I'm going for it, and if I blow up, I blow up, and I'm okay with it, then you're free to go off the front. And that's a metaphor for all of life. Nailed it. You know, spot on. You, you, I guess you are a track fan, but you know, I've been hanging out with you long enough, Steve. It's like osmosis. <laughs> I'm glad something I'm I I like is rubbing off on you. But you know, I think that the the broader picture here, and hopefully those listening understand this, is that like performance is performance, and you can learn so much from watching people perform on the highest level, regardless regardless of if that's, you know, track and field gymnastics or, you know, playing the piano or violin or whatever have you, you know, or what you're doing at work is these themes cross domains and you can pick things from, you know, even running a 400 meter hurdle race and, you know, bring that over to your, you know, your lifestyle, you know, I, I think the 400 hurdle was another great example. If you go back and watch that race, Muhammad and McLaughlin on the women's side were almost dead even going into the last hurdle. And that is when fatigue is jumping on your back. You're so tired and you're like, oh my gosh, I have to jump something, hurdle something. 
and the composure that they had, in particular McLaughlin, who was a little bit behind, the composure to hurdle cleanly, technically sound, get off of it, and then keep driving for the win while you're pressing was incredible. And another kind of metaphor lesson for life. Love it. So the themes that we're learning from the Olympics here, Simone Biles is a case study of accepting reality, even if you don't like what's happening, seeing it clearly, and then having the self-awareness to make a good decision. Um, These hurdlers, it's all about presence. In the case of the 800 runner, vulnerability, really trying to get rid of the noise, staying composed, being with the task at hand, um, having the confidence to know that if you blow up, you blow up. But if you don't, you perform your best and having the training foundation that allows you to do that. And um, then in the case of the, the high jumpers, my favorite Olympic story, it's just about community and relationships and how happiness is best shared, performance is best shared, and you can be a really fierce competitor and still be a happy, fulfilled person if you compete like the Greek etymology of the word, which means to rise up together, to better ourselves together. So those are those are the lessons. Um, hopefully, we're not coming off, you know, to kumbaya, woo-woo here, because these are the best athletes in the world. And this isn't about, like, the, you know, Little League Baseball team deciding to purposefully strike out so that they can tie and not hurt their friends' feelings. This is about people giving everything they have just so happening to be equal and deciding that they're going to love each other and share that moment. This is about the best athlete at her sport, maybe the best athlete, period, certainly up there with LeBron and Serena Williams, deciding that she is not able to do something that she has an expectation to do and having the guts to make a tough call. And it's about people truly nailing it and showing up and having everything together. Um, So as Steve reiterated, these are all just beautiful stories and metaphors for life, um, which is why, you know, even with the doping and the geopolitics and all that stuff, sports still has a special place in our hearts. Couldn't have summed it up better, Brad. Thanks for uh, listening to us nerd out, especially myself on track and field. But hopefully you can see these lessons transcend sport and, you know, if we if we can make the world a little bit more like our two high jumping friends, then it'll be a better place. Love you guys. Uh, thanks for listening. Please check out the book. And um, if you have any questions, just contact us through the website. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the pod. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.